Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time, this is an hour-long call-in talk show where you can call. And I say talk ministry would probably be better because we're not a show. We're here to minister to God's people. But uh, if you have a question concerning the Word of God that you'd like to discuss with us this morning or a special issue in your life or ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on, feel free to call us. Again, the number locally is 843-525-1859. For our Internet listeners, and many listen now through the Internet, at WAGP.net, and you can listen to our station anywhere in the world through the Internet. We have a toll-free number you can use. That number is 877. The call letter is WAGP980, 877-924-7980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, or you can email it to us directly here in the studio. We receive email questions every week during the hour, and that email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Uh, indeed it is, uh, Pastor, and we uh, first of all want to give thanks to God again and to our listeners that helped us in our um Charathon, our spring charathon. We uh, uh, did fail to mention that if you did make a pledge, that uh, we'll be sending you an acknowledgement letter with a, a, a return envelope in there, so that you can go ahead and uh, return your pledge at your convenience. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, how are you guys? Doing fine. Thanks for calling today. How can we help? Uh, yeah, I have a question. Um, I'm working on an assignment for school, and uh, my teacher wants us to form an opinion on whether the Bible is more in line with conservative views or liberal ones. Uh, I just want to get your opinion. Well, that's a that's a great uh, question. Sometimes the term conservative and liberal are used and defined in different ways, but generally speaking, when we say someone is conservative, and I'm assuming you're applying in the political realm— Uh, Someone who is conservative can be conservative both fiscally and conservatively on the social issues. There are some people who are conservative on the social issues, but they're liberal on the fiscal issues. Uh, There are some people who are conservative on the fiscal issues and they're liberal on the social issues. But the Republican platform, for instance, and it's certainly not restricted to this, there are Democrats who are members of the Democrat Party, but they don't espouse to their platform. Some would call that hypocritical or a contradiction in terms. Others would say, well, it's an opportunity. Uh, You can evaluate that on your own. But uh, certainly the Democratic platform uh, does not reflect the biblical values as closely as, say, the Republican platform. That's just a fact. If you know your Bible, um, then you know that 
when the Democrat platform even wanted to take God out of their last platform. And they realized, oh, this is going to create trouble, so we better put God back in. So, you know, we don't want to make too many folks mad. But, you know, they are against uh, traditional family values in favor of homosexual marriage. That's part of their platform. Uh, They are in favor of a woman's right to choose, as they would call it, in favor of the murder of little innocent babies. Both of those values just there are antithetical to the word of God. And really the whole idea, the Republicans are just as guilty in terms of fiscal conservative values. The whole idea of continually spending money you do not have is against the word of God because God warns against excessive debt. And both parties have been guilty of that, though in writing at least in their platform, There are many Republicans who not only believe it, but are committed to fiscal conservative values. We're going to destroy this country financially if we continue on the path that we are on. This whole idea of quantitative easing, where right now, every month, the government is printing $85 billion to buy their own bonds. Uh, You're pumping all this money into the economy that's not real money. It's, it's play money. It's printed money. Uh, but it's not real money. That is a principle that goes against Scripture. What, we, what we're doing, we're barring against ourselves. not to mention we are inviting others to, uh, the, we, we go and borrow from them, and we have debt that is virtually unsustainable. And it's a, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when we go over the fiscal cliff. You know, there's a a very famous falls in the United States called Niagara Falls. Most people know it. And there is a point at Niagara Falls where they call a point of no return. And once you reach that point on the river that approaches the falls, doesn't matter how strong an engine you may have in your boat, you are not going to make it back. There's a point of no return. And we are approaching that point of no return fiscally. Uh, I think there's still an opportunity if some people will wake up and say, we got to put the brakes on. Uh, we, we, we have to stop this insanity. And so sometimes when they say, well, we're spending less money than, uh, you know, than we had budgeted, uh, they manipulate terms and everything else. And uh, th- what they usually mean is we're, we're just not borrowing as much money as we did the prior year. Uh, but it has to stop. Uh, it, it is a law of God. You cannot spend money you do not have. And if you spend money you do not have, then you become, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And we will find enslavement somewhere. Our children will find it. Our grandchildren will find it. But it has to be paid back. Or if it's not paid back, then it's what happened in the late 30s in Germany, that famous picture of a man who has a wheelbarrow full of money about two feet high in a wheelbarrow over the top, and the only thing he can buy with it is a loaf of bread. And that's where we are heading in this nation. Uh, We are reaching a point of no return. So no, there's no question that, uh, generally speaking, uh, when you combine both fiscal and conservative social values, that those who are biblically uh, oriented would reflect uh, that kind of thinking. Uh, versus a Democrat. I mean, how can you say you're conservative or that you believe the Bible 
if you're in favor of abortion and if one is in favor of spending money they don't have and if one is in favor of uh, taking innocent unborn children or even the whole idea there's a whole nother realm which by the way is the principal reason the government exists according to Romans 13 and we're preaching through the book of Romans and I'm going to do a whole series within Romans on the purpose of government when we come to the 13th chapter but one of the functions of government its primary function is to praise good and to put down evil that's what we are told and so the whole idea of peace through strength that uh, when people see the sword, that it has a real edge to it, then their hearts are not so inclined to do evil. And so some liberals say, well, you know, we're spending too much money on the military and we just need to back off. Well, I'm sure there's wasted money in the military, as there is in every budget. But the whole idea of letting our military become weak is very naive, and it has a very low view of... Uh, or I should say an unscriptural view of human nature. It's the perspective that man is basically good and that, you know, we can all just hold hands. And, and it's a it's a wrong view of how God describes humanity. There would be no need for police if everyone was basically good. But who would want to live in a community or a town where there were no police? And who would want to live in a nation where there is not a strong military? And your more liberally minded people have a low view of our military, which is really pathetic. So, again, some people are conservative in paper, but they're not in practice. Others are consistent all the way across the board. Uh, You know, here in South Carolina, Jim DeMint, he was conservative all the way across the board. Fiscally conservative, socially conservative on the social issues that are important to us as evangelical Christians Uh, in terms of the military, a strong military, the whole mindset of peace through strength, um, that a strong military becomes a deterrent to another country fighting us. And even Tim Scott, who's his replacement in the governor, Nikki Haley, appointed to take his place, uh, um, is a, a great, solid by the way, African-American born-again senator for our state, U.S. senator. He's a great man, great man of God, loves Christ. Uh, We're very privileged to have him and committed to these same kinds of values. Does that answer your question? Yes, sir, it does. That'll be very helpful. Well, good. I hope your paper goes well. Lord bless your friend. All right, let's go to the next caller or question. All right. Uh, the following question was uh, emailed to us. The listener writes, if faced with physical aggression... Is an individual believer called to defend self or turn the other cheek, uh, try to draw the offender to Christ and entrust self to our creator? Well, that's a fair question, and it's basically a question of um, when is it right to be a, a pacifist? And there are certainly people in our country who are pacifists. Certainly the most famous would be like the Amish or uh, Seventh-day Adventists, and uh, you you would have other passive pacifist groups, uh, more and more the Methodist Church, because they are liberal theologically. They tend more and more, if you read any of their literature, to be pacifists in terms of the nation's military and how we should defend ourselves. And some people will try to build a case um, for it from Scripture. We're in the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. God says, you shall not murder. And they would say, well, you know, if you um, take a gun and you shoot someone and they're not a believer, 
then you're sending them into a Christless eternity. Well, um, you may be, uh, but that's not necessarily a biblical reason for pacifism. Uh, and people will take some passages, clearly passages like Romans thirteen four tells us that the government does not bear the sword in vain. Um, even in the opening book, the book of beginnings, Genesis, as it's called in our English Bible, Barashit in the Hebrew Bible, the, the titles of the Old Testament books, the first five are actually Greek titles that come from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible into the English Bible. But in the Hebrew Bible, they have entirely different titles. And the title for Genesis is Barashit, which is the very first word in the Word of God. Barashit, bara Elohim, in the beginning, Barashit, created God, the heavens and the earth. And so um, in Genesis 9, in the book of beginnings, which is what the word Genesis means. So you end up with a similar meaning title. On uh, Genesis 9 and verse 6, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So God's not against necessarily taking human life. The question becomes, who has the right? Now, certainly, principally, that right is not given to the average citizen, but it is given to the government. And so there are times when you, yes, you pray for your enemies and you love those who persecute you. Um, you turn the other cheek, as the Sermon on the Mount says in Matthew five thirty nine. But listen, a, a man who loves people will, will hate evil and he'll hate murder. Uh, and a man who doesn't hate murder, he has a hypocritical, diluted kind of love. And so there is a there is a time in which even the individual has a, an opportunity, um, possibly, it's not something you look forward to, but to take another human life. Now, understand, in the King James, it says, thou shalt not kill. In most newer translations, it says, thou shalt not murder. Now, in Hebrew, when the word kill is used, it's the same word, and so context would define meaning. In English, in Old English, like in Hebrew, uh, there was one word, kill, that could describe taking an innocent life, or the same word could be used to describe defending your own life. So understand, all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. And the Bible would make that distinction. So right after the Decalogue is given, when you come to Exodus uh, 22, uh, let me find it here. It says, uh, here it is, Exodus 22 and verse 2. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. So if someone's breaking into your house and you can't see him and you can't tell if he's going to kill you and you end up taking his life, there's no blood guiltiness upon you. It's not considered as murder. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. And so if, uh, if someone breaks into your house and it's clear because there's light in the house, the sun has risen. This is, of course, the days before electricity. And you can see that your life is not being threatened and you take his life. Then God says you're guilty of murder. But there is a time in which to defend your life. If someone comes into your house 
and they have a gun pointed at you and you point a gun back at them and you take their life, you've not committed murder. You've killed the person. But again, all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. There's no blood guiltiness on you. If someone's trying to come in and harm your children, whatever you have to do to prevent that is legitimate. God's word teaches. But if you see that your life is not threatened, let him take your television or your TV, but you don't take a shotgun to his head because God values human life. Someone says, well, you're going to send them into a Christless eternity. And so for this reason, some people will never go to war. And so like, unfortunately, in Eastern Europe, uh, the evangelical church is largely pacifist. They don't believe that Christians should serve in any kind of wartime situation. Um, And sometimes when I speak and minister in Eastern Europe, I'll say, well, what if someone breaks into your house tonight? What are you you going to do? Well, I'm going to try to stop him. Well, what if the only way you can stop him is by hitting him with maybe in the head with a baseball bat or or shooting him with a pistol? Well, I don't know if I can do that. Well, you, you better know because God gives you a right under those circumstances to defend your life. Now, there are times like that guy in Texas where under Texas law, he was exonerated, but under God's law, he was not. His next door neighbor's house was being broken into. So he calls 911 and he says, my next door neighbor's house is being broken into and I'm going to shoot him. But I need you to know that it's being broken into and I've been asked to protect his house while he's away on vacation. And the 911 operator said, please don't shoot him. Wait until the police get there. I'm going to shoot him. He's going to get away. I'm going to shoot him. And he shot him, shot the guy in the back, killed the man. He stood before a jury of his peers and they exonerated him. They shouldn't have. Not if they understood the word of God. Now, they may have interpreted the law and maybe the law exonerated him, but God's law didn't. God's law says he was guilty of murder because his life was in no way threatened. A man's property was threatened. Let let him steal the guy's property. But he should not have taken his life. And he'll have to give an account to the Lord for that someday when he meets God in heaven. So there is a time to defend yourself. There is a time not to defend yourself. There's a time when the law is to take uh, that responsibility. When we turn the other cheek. But there's a time of self-defense that God's word gives us permission. That's a short answer. But it has many applications in terms of capital punishment and what can be done on, a, on the level of your home, can be done on the level of a city, that can be done on the level of a nation with an army, and so on and so forth. But these are important issues. I remember during the first Gulf War and then during the second Gulf War, I had Marines come in to talk to me and they said, I don't know if I can go to this war because I might have to kill someone. I said, well, why did you sign up in the Marine Corps? Why did you sign up in the Marine Corps if you didn't know what you were doing? Well, I thought I would never have to fight. Well, hello, you know, um, you're, you're, you're taking an oath to defend the nation. And so if you're not willing to do that, then you're taking money illegitimately and you should have never signed up in this all-volunteer army. Anyway. Let's go to the next question. 525-1859 is the phone number. Toll free 877-WAGP980. Or you can email us directly here into the studio as our next person is done at TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And they do right. I usually hear people refer to the United States coming under the judgment of God. Um, 
let's see, okay, to coming under the judgment of God because of the legalization of homosexual marriages and abortion, of which I agree are very ungodly practices which should be condemned. But why is there very little to nothing said about the corporate corruption and greed that we've witnessed in this country recently? Well, let me just say parenthetically first that some corporate corruption is not corruption at all. Uh, some people would say that if a, a company is prosperous and makes money and the CEO takes a big salary, that that's corruption. Not necessarily. A man may start a company and be extremely successful and make uh, millions of dollars. Now, if he's a Christian, he should be a wise steward of that. But God calls some of his people to be wealthy. I wouldn't say there are tens of thousands of wealthy people in Holy Scripture when you think of the millions of Israelites. But out of the millions of Israelites, there's some, uh, like Abraham, who's heavy in goods, a very wealthy man. Joseph was very wealthy. So there are some people whom God gives great wealth to because he can entrust that wealth to them. And there's a lot of us that would do well to pray the prayer that uh, is found in Proverbs. Lord, uh, don't make me so poor that I have to beg, but don't make me so rich that I will forget you. And that's what some people do when they get very wealthy. And God warned the the very thing before um, the people went into the promised land. Uh, Moses gathered all the people, the fathers, the grandfathers, and and he gave them what we call the Shema. The Shema is read in every synagogue and every Sabbath, and it has been for centuries. It's what Jesus referred to as the greatest of all the commandments. Hear, O Israel, and the word here, by the way, is the Hebrew word Shema. Hear, O Israel. So we call this the Shema. It's the greatest commandment, Jesus said in Matthew 22. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So dads and granddads are supposed to have the Word of God deeply embedded on their hearts, so that when their sons and their grandsons might come, they can, in the everyday moments of life, teach them to fear the Lord, as verse 2 says. But then he says, it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, which you did not build, and houses full of good things, which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant. And you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So don't forget God when he blesses you. And that's what people tend to do, is they forget God when they bless him. And some people, some corporations, I suppose, get greedy to the point that they earn money unjustly. And so there are greedy corporations. I'm not dismissing that fact. The book of James speaks to this very subject uh, of, uh, of corporations that earn money off the backs of innocent people without paying them a, a fair wage. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. 
It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And so there were rich people who didn't pay those whom they owed or they didn't pay them a fair wage. And if as Christians, if we ought to be guilty of anything, we ought to be guilty of being generous and not withholding and not being cheapskates. People have to earn a living and a fair wage. Uh, That doesn't mean that the CEO of a company can't make a lot of money. He may, and God may choose to bless him with that. But in Romans 1, when God speaks of uh, his giving a culture over. That is a judgment of God as well. So let me respond directly to your question. Uh, It speaks of the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven. Sometimes we speak of the judgment to come, like in 2 Thessalonians, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he shall, future, deal out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's the future retribution that is coming. Uh, The revelation in the 20th chapter, verses 11 to 15, speak of this same thing, where if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. That's future retribution. But there's also a dimension of God's wrath that is a reminder of future wrath that is being dealt out today. And so the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And so these people who refuse to give thanks or praise to God, and that's where we are going as a nation. You know, there was a time 30 years ago when 75% of Americans on any given Sunday would be in church. They may not have been born again, but they were God-fearing why? Because, well, the church in America of true, the true church was, was strong and they served as light that dispelled darkness. They acted as salt that preserved righteousness. And so God used them as salt and light and they had a powerful influence. And so that even unsaved people had a certain reverence for God. Abortion was unthought of. Divorce, you whispered about it. Um, you know, it was a different world. Uh, But now we have become rich and wealthy, and those who came here and nearly half the people in the first winter died, those pilgrims, they were on their face begging God to help this nation prosper. And God answered their prayer, and they saw their need for God, and now this generation has inherited splendid cities that they did not build and beautiful highways that they didn't uh, sweat and labor over and houses that they inherited and monies and cars and possessions that came because of the blessing of God on our forefathers. And in the process, we've done the very thing that Deuteronomy 6 says, we have forgotten God. They refused to give him thanks or praise. And so three times over, it says God gave them over. And so first he describes God giving them over to sexual immorality, promiscuity amongst heterosexuals. And that leads to the next God gave them over where there was a homosexual lust where women exchanged the natural function for that, which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men demanded the natural function for the woman. That's phase two of God abandoning a nation in phase three. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, the third time God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, and here it is, greed. 
being filled with greed, evil, full of malice, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. They understand the ordinance of God. How do they understand or know the ordinance of God? It's written on their hearts. God embedded it on their consciences. And even in the callousness of their conscience, they know that homosexuality is an evil. They may want to call it an inequality. They might want to call abortion a woman's right, but it is still murder. And their conscience tells them that's why so many are in favor of it, because they've had an abortion. And they don't know how to deal with the guilt of an abortion. And unless they find Jesus Christ, the only way to deal with the, 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 the sting of a conscience is to say it's, it's legal, that it's okay, that it's moral, that it's just a piece of blob and not a baby. I thought it interesting last night they referred to uh, this doctor who has been killing live babies. He was, of course, found guilty. Um, thank God he was found guilty. Uh, I guess that that was one they couldn't deny. I mean, babies born alive, and what did he do? He cut their spinal cords. But that's no different from what takes place in America every day in other abortion clinics. You know, it's legal. All you have to do is you, you reach out before the head's delivered, and you suck the brains out of a baby's skull and kill the baby that way. And then the baby's dead when you deliver it. And so that's a legal abortion. But with some of his abortions, the babies were born alive, and then he killed the baby. Now it's murder. Listen, life begins at the moment of conception. God's word is clear, but people don't know how to deal with the guilt, and so they call it okay. Well, they couldn't say it with that. It was too obvious. So when does life begin? Does it begin when the baby's viable? Does it begin, you know, one day before the baby's born or one month or two months? One lady may go in six months pregnant and giving premature labor and they do everything they can to save the baby. Another woman, six months pregnant, may go into an abortion clinic to, to murder her little baby. Life begins at conception. The word of God is clear. So a nation that's covered over in greed um, is a nation that God is abandoning. This is the wrath of God being revealed. And that's where our nation is going. But I'm not going to signal out greed, as you may want me to. Why don't we also underscore haters of God? Why don't we underscore disobedient to parents, inventors of evil, arrogant, boastful? There's a whole list, a whole litany of sins that God describes here. So, um, but I will say that some people are written off as greedy because they're successful. And so that's how I was... uh, Uh, you know, putting a little caveat to what I was describing because some people are successful and we shouldn't diminish that. And we shouldn't necessarily say, well, we should take away from their success. All it takes for a society not to prosper is to punish people who are successful to to realize that their hard work means nothing because it's going to be redistributed to people who haven't worked for it. And that's unfortunate when that happens. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next caller would like to know what your thoughts are about uh, Eugene Peterson and his translation of the Bible called The Message. I don't think it's a good translation. 
the message. Now, do I think there are uh, parts of the message that are sound? There's parts of every paraphrase translation that are just fine. It's pretty hard to butcher John 3.16, even in a paraphrase translation. But um, Eugene Peterson's translation, the message that, you know, surprisingly came out on NAV Press, which is, you know, typically historically a conservative press. And I'm not sure the navigators really examined it, but I think they saw, you know, an opportunity to sell a new Bible and it produced millions of dollars of revenue for them. But if you want to go to my course on Bibliology, it's in Section 6. And if you go to Search the Scriptures, uh, you can order the messages that go with that. It's uh, the course on Bibliology, Section 6, where I do an evaluation of English translations. And I go through every type of English translation that is pretty much available today whether it's the New King James or the King James or the NAS or the ESV or the NIV or the ISV or, or the paraphrase translations like the CEV and the ESV. And I spent hours of preparation and study so that my people would know how to discern these issues. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, these no American standard takes all the blood out of the Bible. You know, it's a liberal translation. Oh, really? Please, um, it's not. And so I deal with that in great detail. Uh, the the message, um, there are passages where they, for instance, 1 Corinthians 6. Read the message, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9 through 11. Strangely, homosexuality is missing. Hmm. Okay. Uh, why? Why is it missing in that litany of sins that God gives? I don't know, but that's pretty sloppy because God mentions it. And so uh, we shouldn't dismiss it. Uh, he's also egalitarian in his theology. Egalitarianism says that men and women are not only equal in their stature before God, something that the Bible teaches, but they're equal in their roles before God, something the Bible does not teach. Bible would teach what we would call complementarian theology, that men and women are equal before God, but they are not equal in their roles before God, that we have different roles in the home and in the church, in the family, uh, and even the government. And so God has a, a, a reason, you know, for telling us the things that he, he tells us. Um, so I'll stop it right there, Rick. Um, actually that's the NIV. Let oh, that's go the go NIV. Okay. I was going to maybe read that text from you. Let me read it out of the new American standard. I'm doing this out of memory. So, uh, forbid me if I got the wrong passage, but one of the major passages and he just, you know, again, conveniently skipped, uh, first Corinthians. Here is the, okay. Here it is. All right. So, um, do you not know that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth. Where does that come from? Use and abuse the earth? What is he, a, you know, a tree hugger and everything in it? Don't qualify as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is an example of a horrendous paraphrase. And I could cite dozens of examples. Let me read to you what the text actually says um, when God addresses this issue. Um, 
and and again we we need to heed this because we're living in a day of uh, of of gross compromise do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived Whenever God says, do not be deceived, the reason he says, do not be deceived is because he knows there's a possibility that we can be deceived. And that's the nature of deception. People who are deceived don't know they are deceived. That's the nature of deception. Um, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now, he takes that. You know, where he says homosexuals and effeminate both are dealing with both the male and female partner in a homosexual relationship. He says those who use and abuse sex. That's that's really watered down. Maybe you could, you know, what what he's done is he's taken adultery, fornication, lesbianism, and homosexuality, and he's put that all under the umbrella. Those who use and abuse each other, those who use and abuse sex. That's really watered down. Those who abuse the earth, that's not even in the text. Nowhere. That's not even in the Bible. So he's brought in this green theology uh, that's not even in the text of Scripture. I could cite dozens of examples. It's a horrendous translation. It's awful. It's awful. But if you want to study it in detail, I cite dozens of examples through my course on bibliology, um, it's hundreds of pages of long in notes. It's a course that someone can take through our Institute of Biblical Studies. But if you just want to get section six, I go through all the different translation issues that we face today. And I think that might be helpful to you. Anyway, let's go to the next question, 525-1859. If you want to go on the air, we're getting a lot of email questions today. And you can email us at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Well, our next listener emailed their question. They would like to know, how do you feel about being under the authority of a pastor that is separated from his wife? Well, uh, probably not a good idea because uh, you're condoning your pastor to do the wrong thing. And really not just you, but the leadership of that church, unless you're an elder or a deacon in that church that would comprise the leadership, depending on how you're church polity exists. Some churches have a single elder with a plurality of deacons. Um, Some have a plurality of elders and a plurality of deacons. But whatever your church polity is, the church uh, leaders should help their pastor at this hour of his need. Um, It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, he's speaking of the word, um, it's a word that refers to a pastor, all right? Uh, Some of the old translations say bishop. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one, here it is. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so if he and his wife are separated, he has a higher priority right now, and that's to leave the ministry and to give his full focus and attention to his bride. 
and to do everything he can to restore that home and that marriage. And that's why when God looks for leadership in the church, one of the questions he asks is not how many degrees does he have behind his name, not how well educated is is he, not how good a businessman has he been in the community, but how does he manage his family? Because if a man does not manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? Do you see what God is saying? He's saying if a man cannot in a limited realm, be successful, then how can he be successful in a broader realm? In other words, if his Christianity can't flesh itself out successfully in his home, don't export it into the church. That's what he's saying. And so that pastor has disqualified himself for a period of time for ministry. And he needs to step out of ministry as a matter of personal integrity. And if he doesn't know what the scriptures teach, then he's not qualified to be a pastor. Or maybe he's blinded by the circumstances because he loves his people so much. And somehow he thinks, well, you know, I just need to be there for my people. No, you need to be there first for your wife. And it would make a huge statement to her that you are willing to step out of the ministry earn your living, not from the gospel, but in a different means uh, so that you can restore your home. And that's what you should seek to do. Uh, Because the pastor, again, is to be a model for the home. It's not that he's perfect, but there has to be certain things that need to be in place. And if they're not, then he doesn't need to be in full-time ministry earning his living from the gospel. Or some elders don't earn their living from the gospel, but nonetheless, they are elders in the church. He will address that when you come to the fifth chapter, because somebody might be listening and say, well, my pastor, we don't pay him a salary. He has a tent-making ministry. Well, if he's an elder or a pastor or a bishop, the word used interchangeably in the New Testament of the same office, he has still disqualified himself. So the Bible makes a distinction between some elders who just serve as rulers in the church and some who are involved as pastor teachers, like in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, underscoring the fact that not all elders will be preachers and teachers. All are to be sound in doctrine and able to teach because that's a mark of maturity, According to Hebrews 5, there's a sense in which every Christian ought to reach a point in his life where he can answer basic doctrinal questions. But there's another sense in which not everyone is called into a teaching ministry. That's what James refers to when he says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing you'll incur stricter judgment. In either case, whether he's a tent-making pastor or earning his living from the gospel, he has disqualified himself from the office based on 1 Timothy 3, as well as Titus chapter 1, the other central passage that deals with the qualifications for an elder in the New Testament. And he needs to, be, he needs to step down. And so what I would suggest to you is you should go to the leaders of the church and say, hey, you know, let's love our pastor with truth. Um, we need to help him. He loves us, but we need to go help him at this point. He needs us to help him. We need to help him focus on his family and restore his home. Uh, Maybe you'll pay him a salary for a few months so he can focus on that and send him to counseling. I don't know. But he needs to get his house in order, and he needs to step out of the pastorate until for a period of time he's sustained um, a healthy family relationship. Let me tell you, there's, there's pressures 
in the ministry that are unique, that are different from any other kind of job. And so I hope you will pray for your pastors. Uh, He is on the front line. He's in a spiritual battle. Um, Now, there are pastors, too, who are in the ministry who are lost, who aren't even born again. They shouldn't be in the ministry at all. And they are blind guides, and there are scores of them. Uh, But again, I'm assuming the best here that your pastor is truly a genuine born-again believer and felt called in the ministry and everything else. But at this point, you need to love him and help him to get his family in order. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859 is the phone number. Or you can go online as this next person has done, and they have dictated their question at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. They write, uh, Jesus said, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. It seems that we do a whole lot of everything else and not much time spent in prayer in our church services. Praise and worship, preaching, teaching, testimonies, baptisms, even announcements sometimes are lengthy. What is your interpretation of this scripture? And are we missing the practice of prayer in our churches? And secondly, our church practices the intinction method of communion. It doesn't seem to line up with Scripture to me and then list some Scripture. All right. Well, let me deal with uh, each question here. Uh, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What's the context of that? Well, uh, twice over he said it. He cleansed the temple twice in his life. At the beginning of his ministry is recorded in John 2. At the end of his ministry is recorded in... I was going to say Matthew 22, but I don't uh, want to misquote that. But at the end of his ministry, Jesus, uh, if you remember, he came um, from uh, Jericho, the final uh, 10 days up into Bethany, about uh, 10 days before, uh, 10 days before the crucifixion. He did a supernatural miracle, if you remember, and he... um, uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, the following Sunday was Palm Sunday. Uh, he made his triumphal entry, went up on the Temple Mount, looked around Jerusalem. He came back to Bethany that night. The next day, Monday morning, he came back and um, and he cleansed the temple. And uh, it was quite a thing. It was Matthew 21. I said 22. It's 21. Um, and of course, again, there, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. How so? Well, they had used it for personal gain. And so for instance, um, when you came and you had to buy the approved sacrifices, uh, they didn't want pagan money. And you had people who came from outside of Palestine, outside of Israel, uh, and they came with their coinage, and they wanted it translated into Jew- Jewish coinage to buy the sacrifice. And so they had these exchange tables, and they charged exorbitant rates and overcharged for the sacrifices, and on and on it went. It just became a commercial business. And you see this sometimes even in evangelical churches today. Uh, I'm not necessarily opposed to um, on occasion we'll have a speaker or musician come and when it's all over um, they'll sell their CDs or their books and some of that is a real ministry to the people of God but I don't want it to be a merchandising kind of uh, uh, sideshow and I'm really careful how we handle that when we at all do it at Community Bible Church 
Um, and it's very rare that I even allow that. And I only allow it when I sense that this is a ministry of great integrity and that this is a ministry that is not merchandising and peddling the word of God. And that's a call I have to make as a pastor. And I will give an account for when I meet the Lord in heaven. Uh, with that said, uh, the temple was to be a house of prayer, but it had lost its focus. Well, what's the temple today? Well, under the old covenant, God had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own, that you've been bought with a price, and so you're to glorify God in this temple, in this body, in your personage. So when we talk about the house shall be a house of prayer, my temple shall be a house of prayer, talk about yourself. That's where it starts. You, yourself, must be a house of prayer. That's why when Jesus dealt in the Sermon on the Mount, with three forms of hypocrisy, and he underscored it in three realms, prayer, giving, and fasting. And he called prayer hypocritical. Uh, Let me just read that text to you in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 6. He's first dealt with giving and the guy who blows a little trumpet and give his alms when he should be doing it in secret. Is that a condemnation? Against public giving? No, there are times in Scripture when the church gave publicly, like Barnabas, when he brought his gift to the apostles' feet. But it's not to be done to the exclusion of private giving. Is there? He'll deal after um, prayer, he'll deal with fasting. And he'll talk about these people who put on this outward show, I'm fasting, and you know, they dress up for it, and it's an outward show just to be seen by men. Is there a time? For public fasting, of course there are. There are examples in Scripture. There's examples in the Acts of the Apostles where the church publicly fasts together as a corporate entity, but it's not to be done to the exclusion of individual fasting. And the same is true with prayer. Is there a time for corporate prayer? Jesus said when you pray, prayer like this, our Father, not my Father, but our Father who art in heaven. Jesus assumes that there will be corporate prayer in the church. Now, some of the things you mentioned, most of which should all take place in the Sunday morning worship service. Uh, The preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word is to be given principal attention, even over prayer, the Bible teaches, uh, when the church is gathered on the Lord's day. That's not to the exclusion of other times when the church gathers to pray, but the preaching of the word of God is to be given principal attention. We're to sing. We're to sing to another, sing and psalming in our hearts to God, one to another. We're to give on the first day of the week as each is prospered. You're to lay aside and give. So all those things should take place. But if, um, if you're talking about prayer, then he would say, and when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. In order to be seen by men. Is it wrong to pray in the synagogue? Not at all. Uh, God dictated uh, people who would lead in prayer in the synagogue. In fact, the worship service that we have structured, at least it's changing now. I know with the seeker sensitive church, but the traditional worship service, if you look at it, I wrote a paper one time on worship in the synagogue. And when I was uh, doing some doctoral studies, And uh, what I found so fascinating when I researched it is that our modern day 
traditional worship service really came right out of the synagogue uh, style of worship. In either case, so God wasn't opposed to prayer in the synagogue, or for that matter, even in public places. On the street corner, there's a time to bring prayer out into the public realm. But if it's done to the exclusion of personal prayer, then there's a problem. So he says, in order to be seen by men, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who sees in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. So there the Lord is talking about individual prayer. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you should say first to yourself, my house shall be a house of prayer. And I have people who come to me and they say, oh, we ought to, you know, pray more. Well, tell me about your prayer life, your personal prayer life. And the time to catch up on it is not Wednesday night at a prayer meeting. You know, I tell people, look, if if you're catching up on your prayer life, don't come up to the microphones and pray. Um, That's somewhat hypocritical. Now, there's a second part to that question. Go back to it, Rick. Indeed, there was. Uh, they wanted to know, <clears throat> excuse me, what is your interpretation of... Um, oh, intinction method of communion in method, light of First yeah. Corinthians 11. Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't think we've ever been asked that before in the Bible line, but if you grew up Roman Catholic, then you know exactly what he is speaking of. The intinction method of communion is when you would take the host, you would take the bread, and you would dip it in the cup. Um, Technically, the Bible never says wine, um, uh, but they dipped it in the cup. Uh, Though there is instruction given uh, to rabbis in celebrating the Passover as to how that should be done, not with the use of strong drink and the didash, which is a second century A.D. pastoral manual. You know, there were times of the year when people would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And here's the challenge is that sometimes wine in the Bible, same word, yayin, oinos, or whatever, can be used of both fermented and unfermented wine. What God did dictate against was strong drink. Now, uh, when I go to Eastern Europe, I tell them sometimes, listen, alcoholism is just rampant in that country. It's unbelievable all across the former Soviet Union how widespread the problem is with alcohol. Every time I go family after family after family, I witness that have been destroyed by the use of alcohol. It is just so very, very sad. And, uh, you know, I tell them, listen, why are you using real wine at the communion table? These people that come into your church by conversion, most of them are coming out of alcoholic, drunkard backgrounds. You need to help them. But intention is when you dipped it in the host. But I do think that dictates against what the pattern is in 1 Corinthians 11, where the cup is separated from the bread. It comes out of Roman Catholicism because they believed in transubstantiation, where the, the, the drink, the wine, was literally transformed into the blood of Christ. And in order not to drip any of it, or to waste any of it. They would either have pre-made hosts that had been saturated in wine and then turned, and, or you would dip it into the cup. And I, I think it takes away from the way God dictated the Lord's Supper is to be done. So it's an unbiblical method, and it's being done by some Methodists and even others today. We're out of time. Hope that helps. Have a great day. Lord bless you. 